Welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 315, and our guest is Lee Ricks. Lee had a great mountain goat hunt this past fall, and he joins us to tell the story of that hunt, what makes mountain goat hunting unique, and much more. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. We truly appreciate it. If you haven't yet, go check out the EXO Experience giveaway. It's going on all of this fall. So we've picked a winner for September and now October, but you still have chances to win here in November and on into the first half of December. For the details on that, go to exomountaingear.com forward slash experience or check out the link in our profile. Finally, just a quick reminder, as always, guys, you can contact us by sending an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. So if you have any questions, guest suggestions, or topic suggestions, let us know. That helps us ensure that we are covering the things that you guys want to hear about. Right now, let's dive into this conversation on mountain goat hunting with Lee Ricks. Well, Lee, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. I'm excited to chat with you today. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You had sent in an email about a hunt you had this fall, um, and to cut to the chase, it's a mountain goat hunt, which for the last handful of years, I've been growing more and more fond of mountain goats and more and more intrigued by the opportunity. So personally, I was like, oh, dang it. <laughs> I got I to gotta hear this story. Yeah. Uh, and then I noticed in the field photos, you're hunting with some crazy characters, which we can talk about. <laughs> yeah, uh, you probably recognize a few of them. Yeah. <laughs> so... But to kick things off, Lee, just for uh, for context for listeners, just tell us a little bit about yourself, whatever you want to share personally or about hunting or background, anything like that. Yeah, sure. You bet. So um, Lee Ricks grew up in northern Michigan. And um, as soon as I graduated from college, my wife and I moved to Helena, Montana. Uh, so about 15 years ago, um, specifically for the recreational opportunities that Montana provides. I mean, you know, not throwing any shade on Michigan, it, it holds its own as far as fishing and hunting opportunities goes. But as far as, you know, mountain hunting, elk hunting in particular, there is some in Michigan, but nothing like the opportunities that you have in, in Montana. So for us, it was a no brainer. And, and we've just uh, really loved, loved the lifestyle and living here and, and all the hunting opportunities we get. And so, yeah, Ben, as uh, soon, soon as I was eligible to start applying as a, as a resident, um, been putting in for moose sheep and goat and deer and elk tags every year in multiple states and been fortunate to draw a couple of good tags over the years. But, um, you know, this, this spring kind of came up aces and pulled a mountain goat tag um, in a unit that had some familiarity with. Uh, my wife drew the same tag back in 2012. Um, Unfortunately, uh, I guess, it, unfortunately, fortunately, uh, we killed her goat pretty quickly and, and never really got to experience as much of the hunt, I think, as, as we would have wanted. Um, it was a wonderful experience, backpacked way in, about 10 miles from the trailhead, and uh, she took a great mature billy, um, but, you know, it was, it was like day two of the hunt and, and never really felt like we scratched that mountain goat itch. So ever since then, I've been, I've been hoping for my turn and this year I got that opportunity. So it was, it was pretty great. cool. Yeah. Steve talked about that. Cause he's had, he had his mountain goat tag, which is once in a lifetime in Idaho as a resident. And, uh, he spent so much time before the season scouting 
and through the summer and then the hunt went quick and he still you know he mentioned like i enjoyed all the time in the field scouting but he almost wishes he wished that hunt was stretched further and so this year when he had a sheep tag he he kind of purposely almost didn't scout in a way because he wanted to have more time in the field for the hunt itself so it is kind of bittersweet to go in and be efficient and tag out on day one or two or three yeah yeah and and um you know when 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 I drew this tag, um, you know, Tyler, Tyler Boschmar, our, our mutual friend, he, he said, well, what kind of goat are you looking for? And, and really, it, I, I never really put a number as far as like size of goat. I, I just really wanted to have a fun experience and enjoy that whole, you know, the excitement of the draw, the anticipation through scouting, the, you know, analyzing what gear you're going to bring, upgrading gear, just, just kind of enjoying that whole immersion in the experience. And then, you know, I told them I'll, I'll just know it when I see it, right. It, it's going to be the right goat in the right location. And, and we're just going to enjoy the, enjoy the hunt. Cause you know, especially in Montana, we don't, we don't really turn out a lot of giant goats. So, you know, a, a, the difference between a good goat and a great goat is like a quarter of an inch or a half an inch. So who, who really cares, right? It's mm-hmm. the experience and, and the country and, and just see what happens. So that's, that's kind of what we did. Yeah. That's cool. How did, uh, how did it come together that you were going to hunt with Tyler? And then I think you um, had some other guys along as well. So what was the plan in terms of, did they invite themselves along? Were you specifically looking for help and more eyeballs behind glass or how did that come together? Yeah. Well, um, you know, Tyler, I know Tyler, he's not ashamed to invite himself on hunts, which I certainly <laughs> yeah. appreciate. Well, that, you know, that guy's an animal. And, and of course the other, the other one we're referencing here is Travis Smith. And th- those two are just brutes. I mean, I, I was, uh, yeah, the, the more the merrier, especially when it's guys of their caliber. So, um, you know, Tyler and I had uh, gotten the idea, to, uh, you know, throw our name in the hat on an unlimited sheep hunt. So, um, we picked up a couple of unlimited tags and then, uh, because we were going to be in the country already, I, I decided, well, I'll just apply for the goat tag too. So, um, kind of neat, you know, it's, um, <laughs> to go into a unit with a valid sheep tag, goat tag, elk tag, deer tag, bear tag. I mean, I, I don't know <laughs> where else in the, in the world you can do that. So, um, Anyway, so Tyler and I had already kind of put the wheels in motion to spend some time in that country. And, uh, and then I pulled the goat tag and it was like, holy cow, this could, this could be something special. So, um, you know, the, the sheep thing didn't come together. No, no surprise there. Those unlimited tags are pretty tough. Uh, sheep densities are super low, um, but the, the goats are everywhere in that unit. So um, as far as how the hunt came together, it, it just was kind of an evolution and and at some point along the way, we picked up Travis and, and I was thankful to have his help as well. So, um, and we did a couple of scouting trips. I think Tyler, Tyler did one trip in there, um, without me with another one of his buddies in, in July, uh, did a big loop through the country, saw a bunch of goats. I don't think he turned up any sheep. Um, you know, it's just, there's just not a lot of them in those units, but, um, saw a ton of goats. That was encouraging. And then a couple of weeks later, um, he, Travis and I went back in and, uh, did another, you know, kind of, kind of opposite of the loop he did originally scouting up into some different basins and picked up a bunch of, bunch of goats. And, um, 
you know, we had a pretty good game plan put together for opening weekend. And this being a backcountry unit, it actually opens on uh, September 1st. A lot of our, a lot of our moose sheep and goat units open on September 15th, but this one being a higher elevation hunt uh, in the backcountry unit, it actually opens on the first. So we, uh, we did our first hunt on Labor Day weekend. And, um, you know, it was, it was interesting when, when we went in in the summer, we saw it, it just seemed like there were nanny and kid groups everywhere. There were lone billies, twos and three group of billies here and there. It just seems like we turned them up all over the place. And already by, by that early September time period, it seemed like, they just kind of started disappearing, just didn't see as many as we had originally. But, uh, you know, we worked our way into the country and got up high as you would in, in goat country and, and um, kind of started tearing it apart. And that, that first weekend, you know, it was good. It was, it was a good trip. We saw some cool stuff, um, ended up bumping into a, a bear. Um, I don't, you know, Tyler and I have spent quite a bit of time hunting bears and, and taking bears ourselves. And, and it's kind of a split decision on whether it was a grizzly or a black bear. It had characteristics of both. Um, but it was interesting. It was a, a sow and a cub. And, and we watched that sow climb all the way to the top of this white bark pine. And, um, you know, when you're, when you're camping in bear country, of course, you're ha hanging your food and keeping a clean camp, but watching a, watching a bear climb, you know, 30 feet up into a tiny spindly little white bark pine kind of makes you rethink how you're hanging your food at night. So, um, anyway, we, uh, that was kind of cool to just watch her do her thing and, and with her cub. And, um, on that particular trip, again, didn't see a whole lot of goats. Um, but on the evening of our second night, we set up camp and we were glassing and we were trying to position ourselves so that we could glass with the sunset behind us, you know, the smoke was still so thick in early September that, you know, you really could only glass with the sun behind you. Otherwise trying to glass into the sun just did not work with, with the smoke. So we're glassing way off and we're picking a few goats off here and there. And, um, you know, it's getting towards evening and, and over the, the top of this, we, we had set our camp kind of at the base of this cliff and, uh, and kind of like turned around <clears throat> as the sun was saying behind us and in this, like this giant nanny. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not an expert mountain goat judge, but I mean, she was huge. She, she, she was just enormous, like kind of makes you second guess whether or not you're going to hold out for a billy. But, um, you know, she came up over this ridge with, a um, a sub adult, um, billy and and looks like a kid and and maybe another billy and and they're feeding around on the cliff above us and it was just such a cool experience to be sitting at our tents and have goats right above us and and so we were watching them and kind of enjoying that experience and and i looked over and and on coming over the ridge maybe two three hundred yards to the south of those ones was another another goat and you could just tell this this was a horse of a different color I mean, it was just a a just big blocky animal, you know, good, heavy horns and, um, sun setting. It's getting to be low light, really don't have a shot opportunity where he's at. So we're watching him and, and Tyler and I are both like, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty special Billy there. And, you know, unfortunately he never worked into a position where if, if I did shoot and he dropped where he was at, we weren't even sure if we could recover him where he was at. 
let alone, I mean, to say nothing of, it, it just wasn't a safe shot anyway, being that he was on his skyline and, and getting to be pretty dark. So um, we just watched him that night and uh, hoped that he'd be there in the morning. So we had a pretty good, pretty good game plan, you know, going to bed that night that uh, there's a, a shooter, Billy, 400 yards above our tent and uh, woke up the next morning and immediately, you know, picked up the nanny and, and kid and sub-adult billies and, and we're like, oh, where'd that big billy go, right? And, and this time of year, the, the mature billies aren't really hanging with the, the kids and nannies, right? They're off kind of doing their own thing. And, and so we're, we're checking the cliffs in close proximity to this, this smaller group and can't really turn up that big billy. And then we ended up, you know, just letting that go, letting that idea go and glassing their direction for maybe 45 minutes or so down country. And I don't know if it was Tyler or me, but we, we turned around and looked up on the ridge and, and two other billies had come up over the ridge and uh, we're glassing. It's like, holy, holy smokes, that, that big billy actually was with the nanny. Like we totally overlooked him. And by then, I think he had, he had had enough and started moving out of the country and um, went up over this cliff. And so Tyler and I packed our things up and, and chased after him. And, and it, was a, it was a pretty good scramble to get up through that cliff, um, working our way. And finally, eventually got on top of this, this knife ridge. And we know this group's got to be somewhere up there. We figured they just went off the edge and they're bedding in the shade for the day. We follow them around and... and um, those, those suckers, they went, I don't know, it was something like a mile in the time that it took us to pack up our camp, uh, climb up, pick our way up through the ridge, uh, get on top of the cliff and, and give pursuit. They, they dropped all the way off the backside of that cliff and went way down a thousand or 1200 feet down and, and tucked themselves in at the base of the cliff, like a mile away. Jeez. And, uh, and <laughs> at that point we're like, eh, you know, yeah, he's a great Billy, but again, you know, we don't, we don't want the experience to be over on day two. And so we're like, well, you know, it's, it's whatever, but we'll tip our hats to this guy and let him go and see what else we can find. And so we decided we'd start uh, making a loop back towards, uh, back towards the trucks and, you know, maybe do some scouting, stay another day. Um, we really weren't decided. And then Tyler got a, a text from home and, and uh, on the in reach and, and we needed to scoot out of there. So we, we just beat feet back to the truck and, uh, and headed back to Helena with the intent that we would go back in like a week or 10 days or something. And, and of course, um, you know, listeners of your podcast know that Tyler joined Steve on his sheep hunt. And so, um, something came up with Steve's schedule, right. Where, where he yeah. needed to move the dates of his sheep hunt around. So, so basically, yeah, we, we, we flopped, uh, dates, uh, for our hunt. So, uh, which ultimately worked out really good for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, one, the hair quality on the goats obviously gets better and better as you get into the season. Mm -hmm. uh, but then two, you know, S Steve took all the piss and wind out of Tyler. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's always nice to have somebody slow Tyler down before you yeah, right, with them personally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that, that guy's like hiking with a thoroughbred that's been doping with cheetah blood. So it's, uh, <laughs> anything you can do to take the wind out of them. It's a good thing. Uh, keep up with them. So anyway, it was, it was cool. I was, I was really glad that, um, 
you know, Tyler was able to, to get down there and help Steve out and, and enjoy that experience too. But anyway, so I think we ended up packing back in um, something, something like September 20th or 21st, we went back down and our initial plan was to, uh, to, you know, sleep at the trailhead. Cause, you know, it's about five or six hour drive from Helena to get to the unit uh, where we access it. So we'd, we'd sleep at the trailhead and then get up in the morning. And, and we had a pretty good plan to, to head into where we had seen a bunch of goats on that second, um, that second scouting trip in August. And so started, um, started out early in the morning and uh, we were hiking up the, the drainage and it had snowed at some point. Um, you know, this, this unit's around 9,500 to 10,500 feet of elevation. So uh, winter comes pretty early down there and, and there's a pretty good, pretty good skiff of snow on the ground, um, even on September 20th. And so we were, we were hiking up the drainage and, and we were just about to go through the saddle of the head wall of the drainage and uh, stopped partway up to, to blow a little bit. And, um, you know, Tyler starts glassing and the whole time we're hiking up, we can hear, like we can hear rocks rolling down the cliffs, but you know, the advantage that we had earlier in September when, you know, you're, you're looking for a white animal amongst, you know, burned out grass, they, they stand out like a sore thumb, but obviously in the snow, they've got the advantage then. And, uh, so we could hear these rocks rolling, but could never really pick up the goats, uh, or whatever is making those rocks roll. And so we're, we're climbing up this drainage and, and we stopped and Tyler starts glassing and he, and he said, well, there's a goat. And I, I kind of just with my naked eye, looked across the drainage and, and right away, you know, you could just pick up, pick up this smudge, right? Like, like the snow is all pure white, but the goats are just, just a little bit darker, different, different tone of white. And, and so I said, well, that's gotta be the Billy. I mean, it's just a, just a perfect place for me. It was this, this sheer cliff with this perfect bench. And I mean, it was just the, this stunning setting and, uh, bust out the spotter and, um, you know, take a look at him. He's about 1200 yards away. And, and he looks just looking at his body, looking at the, the shape of his, his face, you know, he's got a little bit of a Roman nose and you could tell he was a mature Billy, but at that distance, even, even with the spotting scope, you couldn't really tell, what, what, you know, what kind of quality he had for horns. And so we decided we'd get a little bit closer and, and, you know, cut the distance basically to maybe 800 yards and, and looked again and yeah, confirmed that this was, this was the goat. And so we start side hilling over to him and, and the, the bench that he was on, I, I was concerned that if we dropped lower in the drainage, he, he had kind of tucked himself on the back of the bench, um, underneath the, the cliff wall. And I thought if we dropped too low, the lip of the bench that he was on might, might prevent us from seeing him. So my original plan was to stay on his same elevation if we could and, and try and work around and, and eventually, you know, that, that kind of played out and, and it just wasn't, it wasn't passable. It ended up kind of getting a little cliffed out and, and had to backtrack a little bit and ultimately drop below him into some trees and then, you know, climb up. Um, I don't know, it was like three or 400 feet of elevation and ended up belly crawling through these scrubby little pines and, and got my backpack set up, um, laid the rifle across it. And, and at that point he was at, I think it was like 408 yards and pretty, pretty decent wind blowing that day as, as the front 
has, uh, had moved out of the country. It is creating pretty strong winds and, uh, but gusty and, and just figured if I could time my shot between the gusts, we'd be okay. And, um, at that point in the time that, that it took us to work over towards the Billy, um, he had repositioned and was really not in a shot where, where, or a position where I could get a shot. So we, we were just set up and, and I, you know, I got all my puffies on and put my, my rain gear on cause the snow had started to melt. And I figured if I've got to lay here for a while, I'll just hang out with all my warm clothes on. So I don't start shivering, you know, when the moment comes and, and, uh, Tyler got the spotter set up again and, and he's looking, uh, decided to look down country and see if, if we could pick up anything else. And, and right about then, you know, like I'm set up looking at this Billy and, and all of a sudden Tyler says, there's some sheep and like throws his arms up in the air. And that was just enough to make the Billy nervous. And, uh, and so the, it was, it was a pretty remarkable experience though, to be, you know, set up on a nice Billy and then all of a sudden turn up, turn up a little group of, uh, yeah. news. And anyway, so the, the Billy got nervous and stood and I said, Oh, he's he standing, he's standing. And so Tyler spun the spotter around again and, and, uh, set up the phone scope on him. And, you know, again, pretty, pretty decent wind. Um, at this point he was standing quartering to us and uh left to right wind and at 408 yards i'm I'm shooting a seven mag um and i don't i don't use turrets on this particular rifle so i knew at 400 yards i'd be down approximately 14 inches so i held just underneath his chin um and and with him being quartering two i figured the wind would drift it drift the bullet the the impact to the point of his shoulder and that'd be a good angle um, to hit him. So, um, yeah, touched one off. And I don't know if I pulled it a little bit or, you know, I didn't quite call the wind right, but the bullet ended up drifting. Um, instead of hitting him on the point of the shoulder, just behind the shoulder. And being that he was quartering too, you know, it was a little bit further back than I would have hoped, but it was certainly effective. And, um, you know, he, he humped up and, and, and rolled um, back behind a pile of rocks where we couldn't see him. And, and prior to shooting, you know, again, with, with goats, it's, you're always, you always have to be cognizant of what's going to happen after the shot because mm -hmm. you don't want them to, you know, you hear stories of them doing the suicide leap where they throw themselves off a cliff or, you know, if you stone them and they don't move, you know, can you even get to the ledge that they're on? And, and so this one, you know, glassing his location, it looked like there was like a little pathway up to this ledge that he had bedded on. And, uh, after I had shot him, he went behind this pile of rocks where we could no longer see him, but there was, there was a bunch of snow that was rolling down this pathway up to the ledge. So we knew he was still there. And eventually, you know, he, he rolled out from behind that pile of rocks right down that pathway. And then about halfway down the, the avalanche chute to us. So, um, you know, it was all snowy and he didn't beat himself up at all. And, I mean, it, it just, it couldn't have worked out any better than it did as far as recovery goes. So, um, you know, it was, it was great news and, uh, he's a beautiful Billy. His, his coat is perfect. You know, it's, that's always a consideration when you're looking for mountain goats. Um, you know, you want their hair quality to be good as well as, you know, that they're a mature animal and being that it was late later in September and, um, you know, it, it's, hair was just 
perfect. And, and there is such a thing, in my opinion, as too much of a good thing with, with hair on goats. Like I was, I was talking with my, my friend who owns the taxidermy shop here in town. And, and he had the analogy that, you know, if you shoot a goat real late in the season, you know, their, their hair really doesn't loft anymore then. Like it, it looks almost, I think he said it, it almost looks like a bad eighties hairband, right? It just kind of <laughs> like, it just kind of like hangs there over time because, you know, in the animal in, in the wild, when they're shaking themselves out, they're always puffing their fur up and it looks, you know, beautiful and perfect, but on a mount, it, it can eventually just kind of droop. And so, you know, in my opinion, this goat, I mean, he, he had it all. He had a great sweet spot. Yeah. Right. And, and the, the chaps on his legs are nice and long. The mohawk down his back is like perfect. And so interestingly, you know, he ended up being a, a nine and a half inch goat, which was great, obviously. And, and, uh, for our neck of the woods anyway. Um, but I, I think he's only like four. So that was, that was really wow. surprising because this is, um, this is tough country. It's not, not a lot of high protein feed for him up there. And, and for him to get to that type of length, uh, with five and a quarter inch bases, you know, in, in only four years, that was, that was pretty remarkable. So, yeah. um, anyway, it was just, just a wonderful experience, a wonderful mm-hmm. setting. Um, and obviously, you know, to, to, to do it with two great guys, it was just, just everything I hope that that hunt would be. Yeah. So cool, man. I'll mention real quick, uh, just as you're talking about this goat and it is such a, such a pretty goat, um, on Instagram, if you don't mind me sharing your Instagram, just so guys can like maybe hit pause and go see pictures, but it's at MT for Montana dot stock maker. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Perfect. So yeah, you have some cool pictures up there. If guys want to go check out this goat as well as what you're up to, um, Man, I got I got questions. I don't know. I don't even know where to start. Uh, let's start with the rifle. You mentioned seven rim mag. You said, yeah, yeah. And what bullet were you shooting? So I was using 160 grain Nosler Acubond. Okay. Um, I mean, I I've just been a fan of Nosler, both the Acubond and the Partition. Yeah. You know, I'm not a I'm not a real long range shooter, and both of those bullets give me plenty of accuracy to my my limit of about 400 yards. Yeah. Um, the performance was really good. Like I said, I. I hit him, you know, basically right behind the shoulder. So near, we, we did a gutless, um, bone out. So never really did a necropsy on him, but I'm assuming, um, you know, I hit the, the onside lung diaphragm liver and we recovered the bullet in front of the offside hip. And so it was 160 grain bullet, uh, ended up, um, 74% weight retention, uh, perfect mushroom. So I was, you know, very pleased uh, with the performance of that bullet and, um, yeah, as, as you had mentioned on my Instagram handle, I, I do a little bit of custom gun work. Um, I, I make stocks and, um, you know, this, this rifle, I, I love hunting with, with, you know, blued steel and walnut rifles, you know, you know, particularly the ones that I make. And, um, but, but I will concede that not every hunt is conducive to that type of rifle. So I did, uh, I put together this particular seven mag um, using a, a stainless Brux barrel on a, on a stainless model 70 action. And, um, man, it, it shoots great. Got a, a loophole VX five, two to 10 on it. And you know, that, that 160 grain act bomb, I'm getting a little over 3,020 feet per second. So, you know, sighted three inches high at hundred, I'm three inches low at 300 and down about 14 at 400. So that's, yeah. that's plenty for, for me and, 
and um, the type lining that I do. Yeah, I love it. That's a great setup. I'm, you know, it's, I guess, kind of interesting, right, to talk about rifles in general, but I'm just always extra curious in a mountain goat because, as you mentioned, there's there's usually more thought put into you know, cartridge and bullet selection with a mountain goat, just because of, you know, what we talked about earlier of trying to keep them from doing a death dive or something yeah. like that. So I'm just always kind of curious as I'm learning more about that to see what guys are picking. So I think it sounds like a great choice. Yeah. And, and with mountain goats, I mean, you know, I'm by far not an expert. I've only been on the, the two hunts. Um, but you know, in the videos that I've watched in my experience, like nothing impresses them as far mm-hmm. as energy or like, like when you hit them, they just take it right. They're like an elk in that regard. You're not going to knock them down. Um, you know, unless you spine them or something. So, you know, you, you want a well-constructed bullet and, um, you know, this, this just really fit the bill. And, and again, I, I don't, um, I, I, I get a lot of enjoyment out of building custom rifles for specific purposes. Um, so like elk in, in thick timber where you want, a, a heavy bullet at moderate velocity because you know your shots are going to be close or um you know maybe a lighter um deer and antelope rifle for open country um so i, I again I, I get a lot of enjoyment about tailoring my specific rifle almost like a golf club for whichever situation that i'm in um whether that be elk or antelope or in this case the mountain goat um but i I, uh, I didn't want, I, and I don't want a bunch of, you know, all weather rifles in my gun safe. So that was kind of why I chose the seven mag. Cause it is so versatile. Yeah. I can, uh, you know, I can load it down with 150 grain bullets for sheep or antelope or load it up with 175 grain bullets for, um, you know, moose, if I ever do an Alaska hunt or, um, or, you know, backcountry elk hunt or something like that. Um, so anyway, the, the seven mag seemed like a good choice for me and, and, uh, it, it sure, sure worked well on this goat. That's great. It's funny you mentioned earlier, not being an expert on goats and that's one, uh, call it concept. I think is interesting about mountain goats is there are very few experts with true experience simply because there's very few opportunities, right? So, um, there's just not a lot of guys in the lower 48 in particular, and obviously this can change if you get up into BC or Alaska, but if we talk about the lower 48, there's just opportunities are few and far between. So guys who hunt goats in the lower 48, there's just not a lot of opportunity to become experienced uh, with true field time. Yeah. I'm curious for you. I mean, obviously you had this hunt, you mentioned your wife's prior, uh, and obviously outside of those two hunts, I'm, I'm sure you've done plenty of research with mountain goats. You know, they're a unique animal. Um, obviously the, many things that come into play in terms of even identifying Billy versus nanny and how difficult that can be, uh, in field conditions. And obviously you can look at, uh, plenty of things, uh, to look at that in terms of, uh, horn shape, obviously horn size to an extent, bases, base separation, uh, posture, facial, facial structure, et cetera. Like there's these different kind of clues you can piece together to hopefully make an informed decision on nanny versus Billy. I'm curious for you with your field time that you do have, which of those do you find most helpful? Or if that's not a fair question, maybe it is just a matter of putting together all the different clues to try and make that informed decision. Or have you found something in particular that helps you identify Billy versus nanny? Yeah. Um, 
you know, I think it was, it was our, our scouting trip in August where we got into a group. Uh, it was a, it was a big group of goats, which that time of year w- would almost certainly mean nannies and kids. But as we sat there looking at the, I mean, it was like 30 plus goats and uh, you know, we were like, well, that, that one kind of looks like a Billy and that one kind of looks like a Billy and that one's probably a nanny. And, and I, I just realized that all the, all the armchair research you do at home, you just need time in the field, especially in a mixed group. Um, when you see a lone isolated goat, it's almost, especially that time of year, it's almost certainly a Billy. Um, so I guess what it came down to for me is I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't interested in ending my hunt with like a marginal Billy. It was going to obviously be a Billy, right? Mm-hmm. So, so if we got into a situation like on that first hunting trip over uh, Labor Day weekend, you know, if we got into a situation where it was a mixed group, you know, I'm not going to pull the trigger on something that I'm iffy on because there's really no need to. I mean, this, this unit is just stacked with goats. We, in a, in a three day trip, we'd see uh, over a hundred goats. I mean, it was just, it was ridiculous. So, um, anyway, yeah, you're, you're looking for mass of the horns, the, the horn shape that the nannies usually have that little kink towards the top of their horns. Um, nannies horns are typically more parallel than a Billy's, um, and they don't carry that mass all the way to the bases. And then as the season progresses, those, those scent glands at the base of the Billy's horns get more pronounced. And so that's also a good indication um, Billies are typically a little dirtier than nannies are, um, for whatever reason. So you just, you just kind of start doing this process of elimination. And, um, in my particular scenario, the goat was all by himself. Um, and, and he just, he had everything said Billy about it. I mean, he was just, he was just, you know, stacked. I mean, he was just a big burly looking animal and there was never a question. So, you know, I, I know that I'm fortunate to, to have drawn the, the unit that I did with the number of goats that are in it. So I'm, you know, it's kind of a position of privilege that I can say, well, just keep looking for one until it's super obvious. So for guys that are, that are looking to educate themselves on, on field judging goats, um, you know, the Rocky Mountain Goat uh, Alliance has a really good video on YouTube about, um, you know, sexing a, a goat. Um, and then I can't, I can't remember the website, but man, there was a really good one that I had found that just talked about, you know, trying to determine horn length by comparing the horn um, to the distance between the eye and the nose um, and how that kind of all lay, lays out. So, you know, and I guess while we're on that subject, if, if you can, in your imagination, take that goat's horn and straighten it out and if the horn looks like it reaches from the front of the eye to the back of the nose, that's typically about an eight inch goat. And if it goes from the back of the goat's eye to the back of its nose, then that's a nine inch goat. And if it goes back of the eye to front of the nose, you know, you're looking at a no brainer, big billy that's, that's probably pushing 10 inches. So, you know, you should, you should put your glass away and start shooting at that point. Um, Anyway, but, but interestingly on my goat, when we got him back uh, to check him in, um, the distance from eye to nose was only eight and a half inches. So it ended up being a little bit shorter, Mm. um, than, than what that website had said. So again, all that to say, it's very difficult, 
uh, to determine, you know, if you're looking at a nine, nine and a quarter, nine and a half inch goat. And, and again, who, who really cares, you know, just enjoy, enjoy being in that country, enjoy the whole process and, um, you know, don't, don't rush it. Just, yeah. just be there and enjoy it. Yeah. The country and the context that goats live in is obviously part of the appeal to the animal. Like, I think they're an amazing animal, super unique. Uh, you know, they have benefits that are, uh, called attractive, right? <laughs> like from a, just from the animal's perspective, but I mean, if they didn't live in goat country, it's like, uh, they wouldn't be quite as appealing. Right. What was it like for you just to, to have that experience in that country? Because it's essentially, is obviously they're crossing habitat with sheep country and that's its own convert, uh, not conversation, its own conservation conversation that we could have at another time, the intersection of goats and sheep, but, uh, just speak to it for you of, of kind of how special and unique that is. And maybe anything that stands out from, from that in terms of navigation to gear choices to any aspect of that, cause it's, it's different than hunting many other animals. Uh, what, what goats will get you into? Yeah. And I, I don't remember where I had read it, but, but somebody once said, you know, goats take the country that, that are the leftovers from the sheep, you know, so, so they're, you know, the sheep kind of take the prime stuff and then goats are above and beyond that. And it seemed like we would routinely find them where there was like legitimate cliff face, like that's their sanctuary escape cover in close proximity to a, a grassy basin or food source or avalanche chute. Um, really, they, they didn't like just broken terrain. They wanted cliffs. And um, so you're right. Navigating through that country is, is a whole different um, skill set. I mean, it's when we were pursuing that, that Billy on the Labor Day trip, um, you know, it, it got us into some pretty sketchy avalanche shoots, trying to, you know, using both hands, both feet crawling up and it's all decomposing granite. And so we actually got to a point where we had to back out and turn around because there was a fairly technical climbing move that we would have had to have made to continue going up on the path that we were. And I don't think either one of us were, were comfortable doing that. Um, so I, I think on a couple of podcasts ago, you guys had talked about ice axes and, um, and on this particular trip, you know, I, I would say, yeah, you probably don't need an ice axe or a whippet on most hunts, most mountain hunts. But on this particular trip, I, I did have one. And in that scenario on the Labor Day weekend, I was using that ice axe head to dig into the grass um, of the avalanche chute to help, you know, where I didn't have a good handhold or didn't feel secure. I would use that head to dig in and just give me a little bit more assurance and, and firmer grip in that scenario. Um, so that was, that was kind of the one specialized piece of piece of equipment that I was using, um, you know, and micro spikes here and there as well, especially on, on the actual hunt where I took the billy in those snowy conditions. I, I wore micro spikes for a little while, but the snow conditions were such that, that, the snow was actually balling up on the spikes themselves and they were getting to be more of a nuisance than they were worth. So I wore them for a little bit, but ended up kicking them off. Um, but yeah, you're, you're regularly, particularly in that, that, you know, we're, we're just North of Yellowstone in the Beartooth mountains and, and, um, they're just, they are wild and rugged as it gets. And, you know, you, you would, 
frequently find yourself on, you know, knife ridges way up high where it's, it's quasi passable to get up there. And then on the backside of it, it might be a 800 foot sheer cliff that you're, you know, you're, you're sitting up on top of the glass. And so it, yeah, it definitely pushes your boundaries and, and your comfort level pretty regularly, uh, which was kind of the appeal, right? I mean, you're, you're out there to, to test yourself and, and grow and, and have new experiences. And, and so it's, it's cool. It's the, the goats take you to a place to have those experiences. Um, and then it's just a totally cool animal that is perfectly adapted to that environment and, and not only surviving, but thriving there. Right. I mean, obviously with the number of goats that we saw that, um, you know, I, I, a lot of times I, I would think a grasshopper would have to pack a lunch uh, to survive up there. I mean, just didn't look like there's any feed, but, uh, these guys, these guys were doing great, <clears throat> excuse me, doing great. So, um, yeah, it's, it's great. I, I can't wait to be able to, to put in, you know, I'm in the penalty box for the next seven years, but I'll be applying as soon as I can, uh, again. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we, we probably should have touched on that up front. Um, but what is that like? Obviously, you're a Montana resident. You're applying as a resident. But in terms of odds and process, go ahead and just kind of hit the high-level um, information on that for guys who might be curious. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I think a lot of listeners are probably familiar with the Western draw processes. Uh, but in Montana, we're fortunate that we don't have to pick one of the, the big three species. We can we can choose to um, to apply for all the animals every year. So moose, sheep, goat, deer, elk, antelope, mountain lion, bison. Um, so yeah, I, I had been applying for this particular unit for, I think I had 14 bonus points. Um, so in, in Montana, we use the bonus point system as opposed to a preference point system for residents. And that, that basically means that each year my name goes into the hat, um, you know, for the, the application that I've just submitted, plus my 14 unsuccessful years, I get 14 bonus points, which uh, recently we started squaring those bonus points. So whatever 14 squared is, um, that's how many times my name was in the hat. And according to Go Hunt, my, my odds because of that, um, because of those bonus points were about 14% draw odds. So, so actually pretty strong um, draw statistics as far as a, a goat tag goes. Um, so, you know, as far as the probability of me drawing again in the future, now that I'm going to be sitting out for seven years, so I'm going to be seven years behind, um, the, the point holders, uh, plus there's, there's all those max point holders ahead of me, you know, statistically, it's going to be almost impossible for me to ever draw again. Um, but that's okay. You know, I've, I've got a great goat. It was a great experience. And, and so you know, if I never, if I never have the opportunity again in Montana, then so be it. You know, this was, this was, uh, everything I hoped it'd be. Yeah. What of, uh, of those other trophy species you mentioned, if you want to call them that Montana, have you had opportunities to hunt those or is there now with a, a goat and you're in the penalty box for that species kind of what's next on your list? Yeah, well, I've been, um, I mean, I put in Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Utah, I mean, all the Western states. Um, so I'll, I'll keep applying for, uh, for moose and sheep in Montana. Uh, I haven't drawn a moose or sheep goat in Montana, but I did, I did my second year here. 
um, I drew one of the best elk tags in the state. So, so it's totally true. You know, non-residents, uh, we move in, we bring all of our politics with us and then we draw all of the, the premium tags. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's what we do. Uh, no, I'm, I'm kidding. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a really good elk tag, uh, here close to Helena. And, and I had, at that point, you know, I had the best, one of the best elk tags in the state and I had never killed an elk. So, you know, I, I decided I'd, I'd make up for my ignorance with brute force and, and just kept, <laughs> kept hunting and hunting and hunting and ended up taking a good bull on my 30th day of hunting uh, that wow. year. So it was, a, it was a heck of a, a learning curve. Um, but I knew what a special experience was. I hadn't been in the state very long, but I knew what an opportunity that was and really wanted to do the tag justice and, and um, all the people who have applied their whole lives and never drawn that tag. I, you know, I, I wanted to, to honor the experience. So yeah, definitely put in the effort on that one and, and took a great bull, which was a heck of a way to start your elk hunting career. Um, wow. And then uh, a couple of years ago, I ended up drawing uh, one of the better deer tags in the state as well. Um, and spent 13 days in the unit uh, during the peak of the rut, living in a, in a tent for 13 days straight and ended up scratching on that tag. Well, I, I took a, an okay buck, but nothing like what the unit can produce, but you know, that happens. You, you, despite your best efforts, um, sometimes it just doesn't come together. So, um, but you know, it's true. I, I, we hear it on, on all the podcasts and the forums, just apply, apply, apply. It's just stay consistent with your application strategy and, and apply every year because lightning's got to strike somebody in this process. And, yep. and, the more names you can, or the more hats you can get your name in, the better your odds of having that opportunity. So, um, you know, I've, I've drawn a couple, couple good tags now and my wife's drawn a couple good tags. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's all part of it, but you know, it, it's, uh, we're also very fortunate that even if we don't draw one of the limited entry tags, we still get to, we still get to have a great hunt every year in Montana. So, um, it's a heck of a consolation prize. Mm-hmm. That's neat. I, uh, I want to hear more about your stock making, your interest in older firearms as well. It's, uh, you know, there's so much kind of call it modern technology and discussion on firearms and I'm there, right? Like I have a carbon stock, carbon barrel suppressor, blah, 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 blah. But I also love picking up my grandpa's old, yeah. lever action right so um i get the appeal to the older technology and honestly depending on what i'm doing like you said there's there's a purpose for each rifle right um whether that's country weather uh shot distance opportunity but any chance i can get personally to be able to hunt with you know my grandpa's old lever action i'll take it but it's just not yeah. the right tool for every job yeah. yep. um but anyway, how did that start for you? Like you do stock making, stock refinishing, just beautiful yeah. work. Um, was you. that just kind of a passion project, hobby turned, you know, kind of little side job yeah. for you? <laughs> yeah, it was. And, and honestly, I, I think it probably started with my dad. He had a, a real um, appreciation for the heritage of hunting, right? So growing up in Northern Michigan, we had a very traditional deer camp. Um, wearing the red plaid uh, wool, um, you know, cruiser jackets and, um, you know, the, the 
the, the knee high leather boots. And, you know, we, we did it very traditionally. And so we, you know, as, as part of the heritage of hunting, you know, I, I just eventually you, you start noticing these, these classic firearms. And, and I think in, in a lot of different aspects, I just, I have an appreciation for, you know, the, the, what, what can a guy produce with his hand and his eye, you know, to the highest degree possible. So whether that's, you know, fine furniture or carpentry in somebody's home or a bookcase, I mean, whatever it is, I just, I really appreciate what a person can do as far as craftsmanship goes. And so over time, I, I just developed this appreciation for um, custom rifles and um, it was probably, I don't know, it's probably around 2000, 11, 2012, somewhere right in there forever. I've subscribed to sports of field magazine. And, and there's a column in there written by Stephen Dodd Hughes. I think it's called custom shop. And, um, at, at the end of one of his columns, he had put in this, you know, if, if you'd like to see more pictures, you know, go to my website, whatever. So I went there and, and totally geeked out on all of his awesome photography that he's got. And the guy's just, uh, he's, he's one of the best custom gun makers in this country and, and potentially in the world. And, and so I, I sent him an email through his website and said, Hey, you know, I really appreciate your content and, and your, your column in sports afield. Um, please keep up the good work. And, you know, so I signed it off Lee Ricks, Helena, Montana. And almost immediately he emailed me back and said, Oh, you know, thanks for the kind words. If you're ever in Livingston, stop by shops always open. Well, Livingston's only like two hours away. And I, I couldn't believe that, you know, we were practically neighbors by Montana standards. So um, he and I ended up corresponding back and forth. And, and right about then, I had started talks with another custom gun maker to get a project going. And, uh, and I emailed Steve and I said, hey, you know, would you ever consider teaching a class on stock making? And at first he's like, eh, nah, I don't, I'm not really interested. I, you know, it'd be too much work. There probably wouldn't be any interest and it's, you know, da, da, da. And so he, he kind of rolled it around and we kept the conversation going. And eventually I twisted his arm hard enough that he offered, offered a stock making class. And so I went to Livingston for a seven day class and learned, um, you know, the art of, of stock making and finishing stocks and proper stock layout and design you know, how, how you can make this inanimate object, you know, have, have a bit of soul and fit perfectly ergonomically speaking with the human body, you know, and, and how you can manipulate the geometry of the stock so that when you pick up that rifle, man, I, I don't know, I don't know how else to describe it, but the feel is just so different, right? I mean, it just it comes up, everything aligns perfectly instinctively when you pick it up and the hand cut checkering, the, the, hand rubbed oil finish, the wood to metal fit and finish, everything is just perfect. And, and it just, in my opinion, when I'm hunting with one of my rifles, it just heightens the experience for me, right? I, I have a real reverence for this pursuit, for this, for the, the activity of hunting and, and it's, uh, it's enriching for my soul and, and, um, it's, it's, spiritually fulfilling for me and, and using one of these nice rifles just kind of speaks to that reverence and heightens the experience. And, and so that's kind of how I got into it, but I, I can't think of many better ways for a guy to go broke than to keep building his own custom <laughs> project. So uh, eventually I, I started looking for other people to finance my, 
my side hustle here and started taking in outside work uh, for other guys. And um, surprisingly, you know, I, I thought a, as I look at the, at the industry at large, you know, you go into your, your big box outdoor stores and it's nearly all stainless and synthetic stocks. And, and it seems like the, the blue steel and walnut is kind of dying out, but you know, most of, most of my clients are younger guys that, that are interested in the heritage of hunting or they have grandpa's old rifle that, that they want refinished or, or some, you know, maybe it's their first rifle that they bought in high school and they've shot the barrel out and they want it rebarreled and, and maybe tune up the stock a little bit. And, um, and it creates this, this legacy and this heirloom that's a, that's a, you know, it's, it's this functional piece of art that they can pass down to their, their kids and, and, um, keep that, that history and that heritage alive. And, you know, I've got one of my grandpa's old rifles and, and it's, it's a special thing, right? I mean, you, you make these memories with this inanimate object and it, it's a tie to your history and you're making new memories with it. And, and I, I just can't think of anything else in our world that, that is similar, right? That, that um, you can take out and make new memories and have this connection to your, your, uh, your family and, and then pass that on. And I don't know, it's just, to me, it's just really special. And, and I just, uh, I, love the, I love the design process of it, um, you know, and, and nerding out on twist rates and what's, you know, what is, what's the appropriate barrel contour and barrel length and, you know, what, what type of optics are you going to put on it so that we can get the stock geometry, right. And, um, the, the whole process is just a lot of fun. So anyway. Yeah. Love it. That's super cool. Um, if a guy, <clears throat> if a guy doesn't have an older rifle and now like he hears you discuss that and he's like, I want to, I want a piece of that. Right. So he doesn't, maybe he's an adult onset hunter, didn't grow up in a hunted family, nothing got passed down, what have you. What's a like accessible, but cool, older vintage rifle he should maybe consider looking out for? Yeah. So, so as far as the custom rifle goes, um, at least from a traditional sense, uh, the, the pre-64 model 70 is a great platform to start with. Um, a, a whole bunch of them were made. They're getting more expensive to find, but there are dealers that specialize in the actions alone. So they'll find like a basket case old model 70, pull it all apart just for the action and then resell the action. Um, so that would be a great basis for a build. Um, some of the old military Mausers, um, depending on which action, where it was built. Um, some of those are a great platform to start with as well. Um, but you got to be careful with the Mausers because it, it really is dependent on which model and who made it and how heavily it's been used. Um, but that can also be a very elegant basis for a build too. Um, the, the Remington 700, um, that's a, a readily available action as well. Um, you know, to me, it's, it's not quite, quite the same as starting with one of those, those other two that I had mentioned. Um, and then my personal favorite is the Ruger number one single shot. Um, I, I love making custom rifles on, on that platform. Um, and, and I love the romance of the single shot too, right? Like you're 
you are stocking in and committing to doing it right or not, you know, taking that shot when it's perfect or not taking it at all because you have one shot to get it right. And um, I really like that. Now, now having said that, I can <laughs> not always made that right shot on the first, on the first time and I can reload those suckers pretty quick, but, um, but they're a cool, they're a very cool old elegant um, rifle that you can make it, you can make it look very sleek and stylish. And um, I, I really like them. I, you know, I think if, uh, as you mentioned, um, the old lever actions, they can be redone um, to, to a really uh, beautiful custom rifle as well. So it depends on, I would recommend start with, start by thinking about what your pursuit is. So if that's elk, where are you hunting the elk? What is going to be your typical shot distance? Um, and then we can kind of narrow in on caliber um, or cartridge. And from there, you know, start determining what would be an appropriate platform for that. So um, I don't know if that answers your question or not. Oh, that's great. That's great. Cool stuff, Lee. Man, I, uh, I appreciate the story on, on the goat. And uh, as I mentioned, guys, go check out uh, Lee's Instagram. We'll leave a link in the show description, both to see the goat as well as uh, if guys are maybe interested in, interested in some of your work. Uh, it's very cool stuff. Is there anything, uh, I don't know, anything on your mind, whether it's related to this hunt, whether it's related to your work or just another thought, uh, in this space that you'd like to chat about before we wrap it up today? Oh, you know, I, I, I don't know, I guess one lesson that I learned on this goat hunt and, and it's a real like slap myself in the face. Cause you know, optics, 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 like if you think about any hunt in the world, a mountain goat hunt is where you want high quality optics. And, and I thought I could get away with my, you know, 18 power vortex, um, uh, binoculars for this hunt figuring, you know, that that'd be adequate and totally not. So if, uh, if a guy, if a guy want, you know, eventually draws that goat tag, um, pay the weight penalty and carry a high power spotter because it is absolutely, absolutely worth it. Um, so anyway, that was, that was kind of the one big, uh, takeaway. Fortunately, uh, Tyler had his spotter, so he, he bailed me out. That's what hunting buddies are for. That's right. Yeah. Can't have them <laughs> carry the heavy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty sure he did the same for yeah. Steve on the sheep hunt that we could do. Yeah. Well, yeah. And he spotted Steve's sheep too. So I think, sure Steve and I, yeah, we, uh, we both owe him a good bottle of whiskey. Yeah. Dude, Tyler has such an eye for game though. Like I was bear hunting with him this spring and, He's like, oh, bear, bear, bear. And I'm like, where? He's like, it's about 1,800 yards and it's behind a tree, but you can see part <laughs> yeah. of its ear sticking out behind it. And I'm like, seriously, yeah. Tyler? Yeah. And uh, sure enough, man, I mean, it was it was legit. He called it. It's, it's fun to hunt with him. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, that's a wrap, guys. Once again, there's a link to Lee's Instagram profile in the show description, and you can see some pictures of his goat as well as his work on those custom rifles and rifle restoration projects. Don't forget as well, there's a link for the EXO Experience giveaway. Check that out. And finally, again, you can contact us at any time via email to podcast at exomountaingear.com, and we'll talk to you soon.